0: Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It's the 4th of May 2012 here in Japan. It is still the 3rd of May 2012 in the United States, where I'm joined on the line by Roger G. Charles, a retired lieutenant colonel of the U.S. Marine Corps and an award-winning investigative journalist who has worked with a wide variety of media outlets, including Newsweek, Vanity Fair, ABC, CBS, the BBC... It goes on and on. Uh, In 1996 and 1997, he was a consultant on the Oklahoma City bombing for ABC's 2020. And he is the co-author of a brand new book called Oklahoma City, What the Investigation Missed and Why It Still Matters, available from HarperCollins' imprint, William Morrow. Uh, Roger Charles, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you, James.
0: All right. Well, first, why don't you describe the book uh, for people out there who haven't yet seen it and uh, a little bit about what it contains?
1: Well, the, the book's a result of um, 15 and a half, a little over that, over 15 and a half years of research. Um, I started on the story in late July of 1996, uh, about uh, 14, 15 months after the bombing, and uh, have stayed with it on and off, sometimes intensively, almost exclusively, and other times I've had other projects. But uh, um, over the years, uh, who uh, probably did more to keep the story alive than anyone, John D. Cash, J.D. Cash of McCurtain County Daily Gazette in out of Bell, Oklahoma. Uh, he and I teamed up and we agreed to work and write a book together. And unfortunately, in May of 2007, he died suddenly and prematurely. Uh, not, I shouldn't say real suddenly, he was sick for a few weeks and, and died, but we thought he was going to recover and so I was stuck with all this uh, research and documentation, and um, kind of wondering what I was going to do next. When I uh, had a meeting with uh, Andrew Gumble, a British uh, journalist living and working in California, and after several hours of discussing the story, um, we agreed to explore the possibility of writing a book. We proceeded to uh, make that more definite, and in the summer of nineteen. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 2009, we got a book contract. And the book that's out, uh, as you s- just read the title, is a product of that uh, collaboration. Uh, we have uh, some, I think, major new revelations. Uh, we confirm some things that people had suspected. And uh, I, I would say that uh, uh, the readers will be able to draw their own conclusions, but they'll come away. I believe satisfied that we've made a compelling case that the investigation conducted by the FBI under the direction of the Department of Justice into the Oklahoma City bombing was truncated at best, flawed, as all human endeavors are, but it was also corrupted, Uh, and I believe the pattern clearly shows that the corruption was due to directions from Washington, D.C. at the highest levels, To keep the investigators in the field away from certain leads, certain uh, compromising uh, information they did not want disclosed as to uh, the government's prior awareness of a threat uh, to Oklahoma City. And notice I'm not saying specifically to the Murrow building uh, and also the uh, others who were involved in the bombing conspiracy beyond Timothy McVeigh. Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier, uh, and uh, have gone uninvestigated and consequently uh, unprosecuted for their uh, roles in this uh, terrible crime.
0: Well, then let's step back for a moment and take a look at the overall picture that this book paints about what happened on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety-five, at the Alfred P. Murrah Building in Oklahoma City, and let's let's talk about uh, the 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 way that this uh, differs from the official account of what happened that day.
1: Well, uh, we have several things. Uh, the government has claimed that they had absolutely uh, no prior warning, uh, and yet we start off with the interesting a little episode, where two Air Force Bomb Squad guys, and these are very special Air Force Bomb Squad guys that we know were cleared to work for presidential security, um, VIP security, and so on. Uh, They were ordered from Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico uh, to Oklahoma City, on uh, arriving on Monday the 17th of uh, April, two days before the bombing. Their orders were to go to a motel, and wait there until contacted by the FBI. Uh, I had become aware of this information in 1997. Uh, developed some uh, confirming information, uh, but uh, the key was that in the summer of 2001, uh, two journalists—one uh, uh, independent freelance journalist in Phoenix, Arizona—and uh, the other uh, producer for 60 Minutes, two, went the Wednesday program had separate conversations with uh, one of the individuals, one of the two individuals on this bomb squad team, and that's related in the first pages in the book. He admitted he was there. When asked in separate conversations by both journalists why he was there, he responded, as we cite in our end note in the book, you'll have to ask the FBI. So why would two Air Force bomb squad guys be sent (laughs) from? New Mexico to Oklahoma City, two days before the bombing, ordered to wait until contacted by the FBI. And when asked, this one individual on two separate occasions gave the same answer as to why he was there. You'll have to ask the FBI. Of course, the FBI will not discuss it. So that's just one indicator of the, you know, there are others. uh, We get into uh, the uh, uh, phone call to Walter Reed, Army Research Institute, uh, where somebody calls uh, either the Friday before the bombing or the Monday before the bombing. I personally spoke to these people, and um, and they relate that they were told to expect a phone call uh, from somebody in Pentagon congressional liaison, and the Pentagon liaison would be interested in getting information about how do you treat victims of blast overpressure bombs, in other words. Uh, this interest. one of the things was that this office was a research office that basically did research on lab animals. They were not a treatment center. So the one of the people I spoke to was an Army veterinarian, a captain, and she was just uh, befuddled by the phone call. They never did get the phone call, but they were told to expect it. I confirmed that with two other people in the office that they had received this phone call telling them to expect this inquiry about how do you treat last overpressure uh, victims. Um, as I said, they did not get the phone call after the bombing took place on Wednesday the 19th. Whenever the Oklahoma City bombing was mentioned, the people in the office would either whistle or hum the uh, theme song of the old Rod Sterling uh, program, uh, Twilight Zone. And uh, so somebody... Uh, in an official capacity, called this office and told them to expect a call. And oh by the way, the call to the office said that uh, the governor's office of the state of Oklahoma was also interested in the information or was involved in the request. So that's why it was the Congressional Liaison Office at the Pentagon telling them that they would be getting a call. So uh there are other episodes, uh when we write about we're a Guy named Chevy Keo in Spokane, Washington, uh, goes into this uh, office at this trailer park slash motel that he's staying at 45 minutes before the bombing. asked the proprietor to uh, turn on the TV to CNN. Uh, says there's something going to happen, and then when the bombing is shown, uh, you know immediately after the bombing takes place and the first pictures are being shown on CNN of the bombing, uh, he said it's about time or something. That effect. So there are other things too. The lack of ATF uh, special agents in the building, in their office that day, every one of them, every single one of them uh, was uh, absent. Uh, the ATF tried to cook up a story supported by the Department of Justice and prosecution team uh, that uh, they had, uh, that the senior ATF officer had actually been in an elevator that fell during the explosion and somehow survived an elevator that free fell five or six floors, along with a DEA agent. Uh, I think we convincingly show that uh, that just did not happen, that that was a story made up to explain the still unexplained absence of all these ATF officials from their offices on that morning.
0: I'm in, I'm interested. I, I do have a, a copy of the book here. I, I must confess I'm only uh, a, a short way into the book. I haven't managed to, to read the entire thing yet. But uh, I'm interested to know how you cover the April 18th, 1995 phone call that the FBI uh, received warning them of an attack a- in Oklahoma City that uh, was revealed in some documents that were obtained under a Freedom of Information Act request last year uh, that relate to an April uh, 2005 interview with uh, Nichols in which uh, he he talked about this and how the FBI attempted to get him to plead uh, to having made the, the call himself in return for certain favors that they could do in, in terms of getting his uh, sentence uh, commuted.
1: Well, that's just another uh, brick in what I call the wall that we try to build, uh, showing that uh There was some sort of uh, prior awareness on the part of the government that the government should have been able to prevent the bombing and that among other factors that created to their failure uh, was this uh, bureaucratic fighting uh, among the federal law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies, just like you saw on 9-11 where the CIA and the FBI in the case of 9-11 Refused to either share information or did not act properly on information that was shared. So there's a lot of that. Uh, the FBI has gone to, and again, the FBI is doing this under the direction of the Department of Justice. I want to be, be very clear about that. This is not the FBI's initiative to do these things. This is under the direction of the senior most people in the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. And uh, so, but the FBI, has followed their orders and has uh, tried pretty much successfully to uh, squelch any kind of information which would question their version of the case that it's a solved case that they've identified and prosecuted, convicted, tried, uh, everybody involved. McVeigh, Nichols, and allowed Fortier to cop a plea. And uh, I think we make a strong case, and I hope the readers will uh, be convinced by our case that there were other people involved who were never investigated and should have been. They at least had some association with McVeigh. I believe some of them were actually involved, but uh, that's a direction and a, a path that the FBI did not take.
0: Well, let's talk about Terry Nichols and uh, his involvement in the case and, of course, uh, what he has come to say in recent years about the case.
1: Well, we were able uh, to have about 90,000 words of correspondence with Terry Nichols the first time he has communicated with anyone in the media. Um, And uh, he's given some first-time information, such as uh, a very detailed description of building the bomb with Tim McVeigh at Gary Lake State Park uh, in Kansas on Tuesday, the 18th uh, of April, the day before the bombing. Uh, He has uh, described also how uh, Tim McVeigh threatened uh, Nichols' family uh, with uh, serious uh, violence if he did not uh, assist McVeigh. Terry also describes how uh, he expected the bombing to take place sometime uh, either around Thanksgiving of 1994 or Christmas or New Year's of 1994 and um, New Year's Eve of 94. Um, and as a result of that expectation, he left the country and went to the Philippines and did not return until mid-January of 1995. And that's all. That's an answer. I'm not sure it's the final answer. It's to be proven yet, but i've always puzzled why mcveigh and nichols when they had gathered all the components for building a bomb by the end of october of nineteen ninety four why they sat on that the, that collection of components bomb components until april of nineteen ninety five it just it, it doesn't make sense i mean if, if if you're going to collect the components for a bomb the longer you sit on them uh, the more likelihood that you'll be discovered and you won't be successful in whatever your plan is. So Terry Nichols' description of, of this expectation from McVeigh himself that the bombing was going to be on either, on one of those holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, or New Year's Eve of 1994, um, is, um, answers a question to me uh, that I've had. Uh, about why they collected all the bomb components and did nothing with them for about six months. Is it is it the the truth? I don't know. But at least it's a logical and, and plausible explanation when you look at all the facts that we, we do know.
0: Well, let's concentrate on the bombing itself for a moment. And in the book, uh, in Chapter 2, you talk about Stanley Brown, who was a Vietnam War vet. He was a, a, ma- a major in the Oklahoma National Guard a uh, senior member of the Oklahoma County Sheriff's Office Bomb Squad, who also felt that there had been a pair of explosions, two explosions, um, uh, or that he, he thought, given based on a meticulous uh, chronology that you note that he made about the events of that day. Tell us uh, more about the blast itself and some of the uh, eyewitness accounts.
1: Well, that, that's one of the um, dueling experts or dueling witnesses, maybe. Um, there are a number of people besides Major Brown uh, that were in the building He was not in the building, but there were a number of people who were in the building, Murrow building, uh, when the explosions took place. And they distinctly recalled two separate explosions with enough time between the two that they got under their desk, got out of their chair. When the first one took place, they got out of their chairs and took shelter under their desk for uh, protection. And uh, then the second explosion, the big one. Um, And and this is not just one or two people. There are a number of people that have related this very same experience. Then you have the uh, geophysics uh, uh, professor uh, at uh, one of the local universities who had a seismograph, and he shows two distinct spikes, meaning two different uh, shocks on the uh, uh, seismograph, uh, leading him to conclude initially concluded there were two explosions. There were a lot of pressures back and forth, experts, and the end result was this uh, fellow uh, retracted his uh, claim that there were two explosions and said, uh, well, there was one explosion, but he never explained uh, the two different spikes that I know of. So it's still an open issue. And, of course, that a lot of people, uh, some people, uh, a sizable number of people that question the government's case Uh, believe that there were explosives attached to the columns inside the Merrill building. I've not investigated that in depth. It's one of uh, quite a number of uh, issues or leads that I've left alone because I've been more focused on uh, the connections to L.A. City, the neo-Nazi compound in East uh, Oklahoma and the uh, Involvement of uh, the Aryan Republican Army, also known as the Midwest Bank Robbers, and their connections uh, uh, to McVeigh, and the central role, I believe, of a German operative uh, named Andreas Strassmeyer. At City at that time
0: well, before we get on to that um let let 's just concentrate for a moment on the story of retired Air Force General Benton K. Pardon, who you mentioned on page fifty three of the book, who uh, wrote a report to Congress asserting that there had been ad- additional explosives inside the building that could account that would be the only way to account for the damage done to the building. And you write, quote, uh, General Pardon made some elementary mistakes, including an overestimation of the strength of the concrete pillars and a failure to appreciate the power of gravity to pull down part of the building once key support columns had been weakened. But these flaws in Pardon's findings did not stop a number of paranoid anti government activists from accepting this and further alleging that the government itself had brought down the building for political reasons too far removed from reality to be worth dissecting here. And given that the majority, I imagine, of my audience will probably believe that there was government involvement in the blast itself. Uh, perhaps you could talk a little bit about your discussions with Benton Pardon about his findings and what he has to say about this.
1: Well, uh, at the time uh, I was in Oklahoma city, 96, 97, several, uh, for quite a bit of uh, time over several trips. I actually met with general Pardon and got to know him. Well, I did not, uh, choose to get into the dueling experts, blast over pressure, pounds per square inch. The issue for me was that one of the columns that was closer to the uh, bomb uh, detonation point survived basically undamaged, while columns further away from it and almost in a direct line were destroyed. Now, I had a general engineering uh, degree from the Naval Academy. I'm not a certified engineer, and I but I've had enough physics and thermodynamics and strength of materials uh, to know that that's just uh, inexplicable, and nobody, including the government in their studies, have explained how that column survived. So um, the issue of the explosives on uh, columns. Uh, I don't uh, uh, pretend to have the final answer on it. Uh, I think it's an unresolved issue. Uh, It's an issue that uh, uh, has not been uh, looked at, I think, by a completely independent uh, body of experts whose uh, deliberations would be totally transparent. I think that's the only way (laughs) you're gonna resolve that issue.
0: Tell us about Andreas Strassmeier and Elohim City.
1: Uh, Andreas Strassmeier, uh, is cited in a footnote uh, where a now retired senior s- official of the CIA told me that this official had been looking at a document after the bombing, the CIA document, which cited Strassmeyer and described him as a German operative whose information was being shared with the FBI. Uh, I believe there is other evidence that just overwhelmingly supports that uh, individual's comment uh, that Strassmayer was protected. Uh, he was over here as part of an effort to uh, destroy or disrupt at least the bonds between American neo Nazis and the German neo Nazis. And you have to remember, James, at the time, this took place in the early and mid-1990s. Uh, Neo-Nazism in Germany was seen by the chancellor, Gerhard Schroeder. Uh, he said this in, in 1998, uh, as the principal threat to the economic and social stability of Germany. Uh, Louis Free, the new director of the FBI, in, uh, installed in uh, September of 19. 19- Ninety-three made his first overseas trip to Germany in December of 1993. And as a result of that meeting, and this is all in public media reports of this uh, trip, uh, Free announced at a joint press conference in Bonn, Germany with his German counterpart that uh, the, the problem of uh, U.S. support, U.S. neo Nazi support, the German neo Nazi movement would become a priority for the FBI. And that, as an indication of Free's personal commitment to it, he was assigning the task to make an effective program uh, to disrupt, if not destroy, this relationship to Larry Potts, his trusted subordinate, his most trusted subordinate. So, uh, obviously, you have some very high level officials in December of 1993, both German and American, saying that uh, we're going to start this program. And we are going to uh, uh, sever the ties uh, as much as we can between the American neo-Nazis and their German counterparts. The problem for the Germans was very simple. They have laws that you could not publish or print Nazi literature. But that doesn't apply in the United States. So the United States neo-Nazis were printing this stuff and shipping it overland to countries around Germany where it would then be surreptitiously uh, taken into Germany. And so the German laws were just basically being you know overwhelmed by the American support and the, the German government was frantic to get some uh, control of this.
0: Tell tell us about the Southern Poverty Law Center and their involvement at Elohim uh, Elohim City.
1: Well, uh we have a number of documents um and as we say in the in in our introduction that uh, we have an Paralleled and and, and unique access to uh, uh, Terry Nichols' uh, case record. And in there are a number of documents uh, which uh, cite uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center as having informants who are reporting to the FBI about the whole neo Nazi movement. And uh, there's another document which was not in that group. In fact, uh, it was in a totally different uh, set of 300,000 pages of uh, FBI documents that uh, I had access to. And this is a January 4, 1996 teletype from the director of the FBI, Louis Free, to certain field agents, uh, field offices, including uh, Mobile, Alabama, and uh, the ones involved in the Oklahoma City investigation, uh, in which uh, he refers to an informant of the Southern Poverty Law Center, who was at Elohim City, and picked up some information. And um, uh, Free uh, relates some of the information. The uh, document's fairly heavily redacted, but it's clear uh, from that, conversa- from that uh, document, and in uh, uh, Morris D.'s own book, published in 1996, he talks about how uh, he knew as soon as the bombing took place in Oklahoma City, That it was a domestic terrorist uh, attack and it was done by neo-Nazis because he had warned Janet Reno, I believe it was in October of 1994, about the increasing threat, the increasing uh, violent nature of the uh, rhetoric and that uh, there was just a lot of what they call now, you know, the term came into vogue after 9-11, chatter. That's all this... uh, uh, little bits and pieces of intelligence data that may not make a coherent, comprehensive picture, but once the incident takes place, then you can kind of fit it all together. Well, uh, I think the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, had made a a valiant attempt to um, uh, alert uh, the federal government, and I think the federal government had paid attention to that alert. Now, these indicates that they had not But I believe that uh, the evidence that we uh, present shows that there was an awareness in the U.S. government of a threat uh, of bombings in Oklahoma, specifically in Oklahoma City or Tulsa, and that um, um, for whatever reason, that warning information proved insufficient for the government to prevent the bombing
0: obviously too much information for us to go over all of the these details here in this short conversation so so let's turn finally to to timothy mcveigh himself uh tell us a little bit about mcveigh and uh and what you conclude about him his motivations and his background
1: well i'll play amateur amateur psychiatrist for just a second i think timothy mcveigh was terribly traumatized by his mother's abandonment as a uh As he began his teenage years, uh, he uh, had a very difficult time adjusting to that. Uh, He was a bright kid, personable in high school, Uh, but uh, he began to be uh, attracted to what at the time was called the survivalist movement, where people uh, wanted to have um, their own uh, wherewithal to survive in case of some catastrophic collapse of the government or something. He also began to read uh, a lot of Federalist papers and so on, began to question uh, the size of government. He became uh, committed to the uh, belief that the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, is all that stands between uh, the individual citizen, uh, ultimately, and uh, a overbearing and corrupt uh, central government uh, that could become tyrannical. Uh, if it wasn't for the armed citizen that kept it from becoming uh, tyrannical. Uh, McVeigh uh, had um, some kind of nondescript jobs out of high school, uh, joined the Army, uh, loved the discipline, loved the association with weapons and machinery, and was a very, very good soldier, and we describe that. He's then sent to the Iran-Iraq, uh, I'm sorry, not Iran-Iraq, the uh, U.S. war with Iraq uh, in 1991, early 1991, uh, and it's over in just a few uh, days. But during those days, uh, he is further traumatized by killing uh, Iraqi soldiers, which he later thinks about and realizes, uh, at least in his view, were just kind of guys like him, you know, doing the bidding of a big government that was so far removed from them and their interests, and they were just cogs in this huge machinery. Uh, he comes back uh, to Fort Riley, Kansas uh, in the um, summer of 1991, uh, goes to a special forces screening course at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, he's not physically prepared for it because he's been riding a, an armored vehicle around the sands of uh, Iraq for months, and his feet are not as tough as they would have been if he had been out uh, doing conditioning hikes and so on as an infantryman. So he, fail, he, he can't complete the screening course because his feet blister badly. But this is one of the things that most people are not aware of. He's invited to come back. McVeigh is not washed out. He's not bitter about that, or at least uh, in my belief he's not bitter about it. Uh, he's invited to come back when his feet are in condition. He decides uh, to stay in the Army. Uh, but then after the experience uh, with the uh, failing the Special Forces screening course, Uh, Decides, no, he wants out of the Army, gets out the last of December 1991, uh, begins kind of bumming around the country. But while he was in the Army, uh, he had somehow gravitated toward uh, a a very dark and, uh, I would have to say, distorted uh, evil view of uh, race relations uh, in general. Uh, He carried around before,
0: before we get into that issue, perhaps we can talk about the uh, the letter which he wrote to his sister Jennifer McVeigh on October 20th 1993, which was republished in the New York Times on July 1st 1998 in which he talked about his uh, selection for uh, to become part of a special cadre when he was at Fort Bragg in which he said, quote, uh, when when he was talking about what they had told him this group was going to be involved in, he said, quote, what I learned next, both from the briefings and from the questions and private talks included, one, we would be helping the CIA fly drugs into the U.S. to fund many covert operations. Two, military consultants were to work hand in hand with civilian police agencies to quiet anyone who was deemed a security risk. We would be government paid assassins. And three, many other details to verify these last to see the enclosed article or watch again this movie, Lethal Weapon. So he was uh, talking about some very, very interesting parts of his uh, supposed assignment there at Fort Bragg. Perhaps we can talk about that.
1: Well, uh, you know, he did put that In the letter, he further, when he was on the death row at Terre Haute in Indiana from 1999 to 2001 and became associated with a guy named David Paul Hammer, uh, gave David Paul Hammer uh, basically the same story. Um, The problem with black ops is by their nature and by their definition, um, the information is almost impossible to obtain to confirm that that version's true, uh,
0: but it is possible to to determine if a different version is false. And on that note, tell us about the absolutely startling footage that has been unearthed by Bill Bean. I'm sorry, the startling footage that uh, Bill Bean unearthed of uh, McVeigh in August of 1993.
1: I'm not, is that uh, supposedly where he's at, Grafton, North Dakota?
0: At, at Camp Grafton, the Army National Guard uh, Explosives Demolition Training Facility, in August of 1993, uh, two years after McVeigh supposedly was discharged.
1: I, I've seen the pictures. Uh, I do not see it as McVeigh. I, I don't think it's a match.
0: Did you uh, talk to Bill Bean for the, uh, the book? I have not. No. Would you be interested in doing so?
1: Would
0: absolutely, sure.
1: Yeah, but I just, it, it does not look like McVeigh. And let me just say, John Doe won. The sketch I don't think is Tim McVeigh either. And we we make that point in the book that claimed that Tim McVeigh rented the Ryder truck on Monday the 17th, two days before the bombing, at Eldon Elliott's Ryder rental office in Junction City, Kansas. The FBI has provided no fingerprint proof. Uh, there's no forensic data that that's Tim McVeigh. And in fact, if you look at the physical description, Tim McVeigh is not even a close match, and we cite a U.S. Secret Service entry in an uh, official uh, record of uh, information that they were getting from the FBI uh, saying that uh, uh, McVeigh is not a match for the physical description.
0: So, and of course, uh, we also have the, uh, the security footage that was the CCTV footage of uh, the... Rider truck pulling up to the building, which the FBI now claims doesn't exist or they can't find it, but uh, which the L.A. Times and others have reported on.
1: You've said it doesn't exist now because Jesse Trinidad has a a number of uh, legal actions in federal court in Salt Lake City on that issue. And what the FBI has said is we can't find it because in other documents, uh, in an earlier suit by a fellow named David Hoffman and his attorney, Michael Johnston of Oklahoma City, who's done superb work, the FBI itemized the uh, videotapes that they had at the time, and this is a number of years ago, including one that was kept in Washington, D.C., away from where the other trial evidence was. So uh, Jesse Trinidad is continuing to fight this out in federal court, and there's a hearing in June uh, where the government has to respond to uh, some of the judge's questions, and hopefully we're within just another year or so of of getting some resolution on that. But um, the the whole issue of uh, surveillance tapes, uh, I think, is a, uh, a very troubling one for the government because uh, the Secret Service timeline, for example, there are three different citations of, uh, of information, and again, this information comes from the FBI, the Secret Service as a liaison team in the office, uh, in, the, in the command center. The FBI r- is running in Oklahoma City. And so this liaison team is reporting the information back to their Secret Service Operations Center in Washington, D.C. And we have a record of that information as it was logged in to the Operations Center in Washington, D.C. And there are three separate uh, entries referring to um, surveillance tape and suspects, plural, in one case seen in a surveillance tape exiting the Ryder truck. So uh, you would think the government would have wanted to use that to prove uh, Tim McVeigh and uh, others unknown, but at least McVeigh was present at the bomb scene and uh, getting out of the Ryder truck that blew up. But because there was somebody with him and the government wanted to contain the suspects uh, to McVeigh, Nichols, and Fortier, the government treated that as radioactive information and have tried to bury it
0: unfortunately so well there's so much other information that we could get into with the testimony of jane graham or the story of carol howe or the story of terence yakey and and hoppy heidelberg and so so many other people who uh, have questioned the official government story in various ways and whose story intersects with the the uh, narrative of oklahoma city what the investigation missed and why it still matters, but uh, but let's let's just turn finally to a, a discussion of the uh, the statement that you made earlier that you want people to basically draw their own conclusions. Um, you've documented the facts here, and people can go away and put them together as they uh, as they see best. But. Uh, given the, the type of inflammatory rhetoric about calling people paranoid anti-government activists, etc., and given that most of my audience would probably fall into that type of description, uh, what can you say about why they should uh, be interested in this book?
1: Well, I think what we have for the first time is a uh, huge amount of new information that's never been re- revealed before. Uh, and I think that given the nature of the publication, Uh, of the publishing business that having Harper Collins put out a book which raises serious questions about the completeness and the validity of the government investigation in a way that has not been done before, I think in uh, a number of years at least, uh, in any kind of mainstream uh, publication, whether a book magazine or uh, electronic version. I think uh, under the adage that better is the enemy of good enough. Uh, I do not think this is the final story. I think this is a chapter in what will be a continuing series of stories, whether they're in books or documentaries or whatever. Um, we're we're not at the truth. This is not the whole truth. This is more an expose, I think, based on fact that we could document uh, that um, the... Uh, government's case is flawed and is basically a lie. And if people uh, have expectations that uh, we're going to be able to uh, expose that in some, uh, you know, concrete uh, document, one document says, here's the plan that the government had in place uh, to blow up the building, and here's why they wanted to do it. Uh, We don't make that claim. I personally don't believe the government wanted the building to be blown up. I believe the government, through incompetence or negligence or some combination, failed to prevent the bombing, and that once that happened, then they had to construct this flimsy uh, story of just these two losers, these two loners, uh, McVeigh and Nichols, and with Michael Fortier in the background, the distant background, and brought in really only to be a witness against uh, McVeigh and Nichols, uh, that that was... uh, uh, that's an important uh... achievement and uh... some people will say it's uh... left out a lot of things uh... there are a lot of various versions out there we've tried to screen them carefully uh, but again this is the first chapter it is not the final chapter in the oklahoma city bombing and if people uh... had higher expectations um, i wish we could have met them but uh... we had to be reviewed by lawyers uh, and uh, we had to be certain of our facts. Uh, what we have, I think, will stand up to scrutiny. Uh, some of the information, I think the quotes you have there, uh, was in the uh, prologue. I don't think it's in the text of the uh, book itself, in, in the chapters. So uh,
0: Actually, that was in Chapter 2. Was that
1: in Chapter 2? Okay, my mistake. Okay, well, um, it's in Chapter 2.
0: All right. Well, how can people, what's the best way for people to get a copy of the book?
1: Well, I am a big believer in supporting the independent bookstores. If you want to spend a little more money and uh, do that, I would encourage you to do that. If you want the cheaper or easier way, some combination of cheaper and easier, then you have two uh, uh, websites that are uh, generally uh, used, uh, amazon.com and Barnes and Noble has a website. So, Uh, You can do that, and particularly if you're overseas and want to get it, uh, order it and have it shipped, that's probably the better way.
0: All right, Roger Um, G. Oh, yes, go ahead. There's
1: an English-language bookstore. I would imagine there is in a a place as big as Tokyo, but uh, what their their selection of books is and how quickly they get them, I, I don't know.
0: Well, they can certainly be ordered from, from bookstores here at any rate, even if they're not in stock. So uh, Roger G. Charles, co-author with Andrew Gumble of Oklahoma City, What the Investigation Missed and Why It Still Matters. Thank you for your time today.
1: Thanks for having me on, James.